Are you ready, spaghetti? Yeah. Hey, all you fruity cats and kittens. I'm Whitley. And I'm Brian. And this is Deathly Afraid. Ooh. <laughs> How was your dang week, Brian? Pretty dang great, Whitley. Was it good? Yeah. What about yours? She's <laughs> just gripping the microphone. Maybe. <laughs> Mine was good. My weekend was so busy like yours. Right. And we're only on Wednesday, so. This weekend's going to be just as crazy. Yes, it is. So busy. We're going to Utah for a wedding, which we're super excited about. But we have to turn around first thing Sunday morning and come back for Creed's baseball. Yeah. Because baseball rules our lives. <laughs> that it does. And we only have one play. I know. I can't, I can't imagine, imagine the families that have multiples. multiples. Yeah. Good thing Lennon likes music and Grayson's not coordinated. Right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, Grayson wants to try basketball, so we'll see how that goes. Um, Do I get to go first this week since I let you guys go first last week? Yeah. And mine might end up being a two-parter. I'm not sure yet. We'll see how it goes. <laughs> it's a pretty long one. So mine this week was actually about a cult. And it was suggested by my favorite listener, Squidney. 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 You're all my favorite, you guys. Chris going to be like, oh. Oh, I'm not your I favorite. I thought I was her favorite. Now they're all going to stop listening. <laughs> She's the one that gives us suggestions, okay? Quite a bit. There's a couple others that have suggested stuff. That's true. But we need more. We need more suggestions. (laughs) So this one's called the Ant Hill Kids. Have you ever heard of it? No, I have not. It is crazy. It is so crazy. Like, you'll see once I get more into it. But, like, I don't know how this man got people to stay. Like, it's just insane to me. So, tell you about the Ant Hill Kids. I need to tell you about their leader, Rock Theralt. Not sure, but I'm pretty sure that's how you say his last name. Sounds good to me. Um, Rock was a real piece of work. He was born on May 16th, like my dad and brother. So, maybe they're a couple of buttholes, too. <laughs> Uh, May 16th of 1947 in Saguenay. Saguenay? You look at that, you tell me. Saguenay? Saguenay. That's what I thought at first, but then I was like, "Mm, I don't know. So Saguenay, Quebec, Canada. I'm sorry, Canada. I cannot pronounce 
your cities, states, whatever they are. Territories. <laughs> Territories. Uh-huh. I suck. Um, so as a child, Rock was considered to be very intelligent, but he dropped out of school in the seventh grade, which I'm, I'm, sounds pretty intelligent to me, but... Right. And he began to teach himself the Old Testament from the Bible. He believed that the end of the world was near and would be brought on by a war between good and evil. Isn't that what all wars are? That's what I was just (laughs) (laughs) That's basically a war, yeah. So Rock converted from Catholicism to Seventh-day Adventist Church and began practicing the denomination's regular holistic beliefs, which encouraged a healthy lifestyle free of unhealthy foods and tobacco. Which sounds like... A good thing. Right. Right. So just to be clear, he like he joined the Seventh Day Adventist, but what he did was very against their church. He, yeah. In nineteen seventy seven, Rock formed a cult in Santa Marie, Quebec. I hope that's how you say that. Saint Marie. Saint Marie. Santa Marie. I don't know. Quebec. While organizing seminars for the Adventists, he convinced an entire group of people to quit their jobs and form his religious following called the Ant Hill Kids, named for their ant-like hard work. (laughs) Um, His goal was to form a commune where people would freely listen to his motivational speeches, live in unity and equality, and be free of sin. Which sounds... Nice. Right. Right? He's a liar. (laughs) (laughs) So the Adventists eventually kicked him out of their church for his behavior. What? Right? Um, I mean, he's already starting a commune and, you know, they're like, you know, maybe not. (laughs) He prohibited the group from remaining in contact with their families and with the Seventh-day Adventist church. So these people... Like he gathered as he was basically like going door to door, like, hey, join our church, the Adventist church. But he's gathering them and he's like, really come over here, you yeah. know? And that's, you know, kicked out or whatever. He prevented the group from remaining in contact with their families and with the Seventh day Adventist church, as this was against the cult's values of freedom. Does not sound very free to me. Right. He began going by Moses instead of Rock and claimed to be a prophet of God. Is it, was Moses the one that walked on water? No, that's Jesus, son. Mars. 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 No, he's the one that. Go, where am I going? Moses. He's part of the Red Sea. Yes. So he started going by Moses. Um, he also developed a bit of a drinking problem, which wasn't very fun for anyone. And also, if he's living by these Adventist rules, uh, does not go with that either. So, Rock's fear of the end of the world grew, and he claimed that God had warned him that it would come in February of 1979 and used the commune to prepare for it. And yet, here we are. Right? 2023. Obviously, we know the world did not end. Sounds like, wasn't it? It was the Vallos that also predicted the world was going to end, like, what, last summer? 
Something like that. Yeah. If someone tells you the world's going to end on a certain day, just know that they're crazy. So in 1978, in preparation, Rock moved his commune by hiking to a mountainside called the Eternal or called Eternal Mountain in Saint Jogs Yogus Jogus. Sure. Sure. You take that. Okay, (laughs) guys. I'm not even gonna try. Canada, why? In the sparsely populated Gasp Peninsula where he claimed they could all be saved. He made the commune build their town while he relaxed, comparing them to ants working in an anthill, naming them the anthill kids. In February of 1979, when the apocalypse did not occur, and people started questioning Rock's wisdom, he defended himself by saying that, Time on Earth and in God's world are not parallel, and that, therefore, was a miscalculation. (laughs) (laughs) Um, This was gross. I mean, a lot of the stuff he does was gross, but... um, Rock married and impregnated all of the women, fathering over 20 children with nine female members of the group, and by 1980, there were nearly 40 members. Followers were made to wear identical tunics and represent equality or to represent equality and their devotion to the commune. So he's just Poor like, ladies. right. <laughs> They're like, yes, you're so wise. Oh, leader. You know, <laughs> um, in 1984, the group relocated, relocated, relocated. I started reading Quebec at the same time <laughs> as I said, relocated. They relocated from Quebec to a new site near Burnt River, a hamlet in central Ontario, now part of the city of Kawartha Lakes. Yeah? Yeah. Yeah. So now that he has this cult cult formed, Rock becomes extremely controlling. Like, he wasn't already. Like, you can't talk to your families. You can't talk to Seven Day Adventists. You're going to have all my babies. Like... He gets more controlling than that. <laughs> um, his drinking gets way worse, and he becomes increasingly totalitarian. I can't say totalitarian. That totalitarian. I can't say words over the lives of his followers and irrational in his beliefs. Members of the Ant Hill Kids were not allowed to speak to each other when he was not present, and they were not allowed to have sex with each other without his permission. So it would be like me and you. As a couple, join his little church, but we have to be like, hey, you know what? Is it okay if me and Brian do it tonight? Is that okay? And he would have to be like, yeah, I guess that's all right. Or nah. <laughs> like weird. Right. Like, would you seriously ask somebody for permission? That's weird. I mean, obviously you have to ask me for permission, but I mean, well? outside of the two people. Would you ask somebody else? No. No, that's weird. So Rock used his charisma to cover to cover for his increasingly abusive and erratic behavior, and none of the other members questioned his judgment or openly blamed him for any physical, mental, or emotional damage. He began to inflict punishment on followers that he considered to be straying by spying on them and claiming that God told him what they did. So you <laughs> Mom told me you did that. He's seen it through your window last night. 
<laughs> so if a person wish if a person wished to leave the commune, he would hit them with either a belt or a hammer, suspend them from the ceiling, pluck each hair of their body hairs individually, or even defecate on them. That Who disgusting. is going to sit there long enough for someone to do that to you? Right. Like he had these people brainwashed. Sounds like it. The Ant Hill kids raised money for living by selling baked goods, and members who did not bring in enough money were also punished. While he sat around and just relaxed right. with his alcohol. <laughs> the punishments became. More extreme and violent, including making members break their own legs with sledgehammers, which also, if you sat there and was like, take this hammer and break your legs, I'd be like, nah. I don't feel like it today. No, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> um, sit on lit stoves. Soot each other in the sh- sh- soot. soot. I did not mean to say <laughs> Shoot each other in the shoulders and Eat dead mice and feces. A follower would sometimes be asked to cut off another follower's toes with wire cutters to prove loyalty. Uh. And they stuck around. And then it only gets worse. So, buckle up, buttercup. <laughs> um, the cult's children who were sexually abused held off, held over fires or nailed to trees while other children threw stones at them. One of Rock's wives left her newborn child, Elazar. Oh, I can't say that. Lavala, Lavale, Lovely, Lovely. Right? Lovely. Lovely. I'm not French. <laughs> um, she left him outside to die in the freezing temperatures to keep him away from the abuse. Like she was just like, you know what? This is going to be way better than what you would have to endure. That's stupid. stupid but- it's stupid, yeah. And why she wouldn't just try to... I mean, obviously, there's punishments for trying to leave. Maybe she was scared, but yeah, I would do whatever I could to try to protect my child. I guess if you're not in that situation, you don't know, right? I guess not. So, Rock attempted to backtrack to the original religious mission of the commune, beginning to strongly believe in purifying his follower- followers and ridding them of their sins through abusive purification sessions where the members would be completely nude as he whipped and beat them. And they stuck around. These people are nuts. Well, it's like, you know, you hear about people who are in abusive situations and it's like, you don't know till you're in that situation and you think you're trapped or you think you're the one doing something wrong, you know? Yeah. So who knows what was going through these people's heads, but holy crap. Um, he claimed to be a holy being. Sounds familiar like the Valos. Right. And he started performing unnecessary amateur surgical operations on sick members to demonstrate his healing powers. Like, Literally trying to perform surgery on these people. Um, These surgeries included injecting a 94% ethanol solution into stomachs or performing, performing, performing circumcisions on the children and adults of the group. I would not let him near my junk. 
<laughs> you would hope you came into this place circumcised. Right? Yeah, I'm good. I already got done. <laughs> In 1987, social workers moved 17 of the children from the commune. Removed, not moved. Willie. Removed, moved. Basically the same thing. Yeah, so 17 children, they took them from the commune. However, Rock faced no repercussions. He faced no repercussions for his abusive acts. But at least they got the kids out, right? And not even all of them, just 17 of them. In 1989, when follower Sloan Boylard complained of an upset stomach, Rock performed another amateur surgery without anesthesia. He laid her naked on the table, punched her in the stomach, which that's not surgery, (laughs) then forced a plastic tube into her rectum to perform an enema with molasses and olive oil. Why? Sounds like a horrible time. Hold on, let me punch you in the stomach, and then I'm going to shove this up your butt and put stuff that is not going to help you in there. Right. Then, it gets worse. He cut open her abdomen with a knife, ripped out part of her intestines with his bare hands, probably didn't even wash them, gross, and he made another member, Gabrielle Lovely, you know, the kid's mom. That left him out in the cold. Yeah. I can't say her last name either. It's the same Lovely. last name. Yeah. Lovely, something like that. Um, he made her stitch her up using a needle and thread and had the other women shove a tube down her throat and blow through it. Like, what is his thought process? I don't know. <laughs> um, not surprisingly, though, Salone died the next day from the damage inflicted by the procedures. Poor Sloan. Right? I would never complain of any ailment right. around this man. I'm going to go just I'm gonna go my own way. Right? So we know at this point that Rock is absolutely insane. But this man told his followers that he had the power of resurrection and could bring Sloan back to life. Don't read ahead, please. Did you read ahead? No. Brian, I want you to take some guess on how he attempted to resurrect Sloan. Hmm. It's disgusting. You're not going to guess it. I don't know. Maybe doing the same blowing in her stomach shit or something like you're shooting her out. It's so much worse. He drilled a hole into her skull with a drill, obviously. And then he and the other male members ejaculated into it. That's totally how you bring somebody back from the dead. How do you not know that? Right. I guess (laughs) I'm not privy to this because I cannot do it. Obviously, surprise, surprise. I bring people back left and right. I don't know what your problem is. You've only brought two people to life. Um, Obviously, it didn't work. And she was buried a short distance from the commune. How freaking, like, he just had all the guys do it, too. Like, come on, this is how we're going to revive her. It's going to work. Promise. But as a person, how could you stand there and do that and just be like, right? It's just, what the heck? So, Gabrielle attempted to escape the commune after enduring endless torture, such as suffering welding torch burns to her genitals, 
a hypodermic needle breaking off in her back, eight of her teeth being forcibly removed, and Rock even cut off parts of her breasts and smashed her head in with a blunt side of an axe. She's still living? Mm-hmm. Holy crap. So after she came back, Rock removed one of her fingers with wire cutters, pinned her hand to a wooden table with a hunting knife, then he used a cleaver to amputate her arm. So, obviously, Gabrielle fled again um, and contacted authorities, which came and Rock was arrested, ultimately ultimately, ultimately dissolve, dissolving the anthill kids. They were no more. Good. Right? Um, authorities had long held suspicions about Rock's cult due to the particularly primitive living conditions of its members. But because the commune was officially registered as a church, officials were legally unable to investigate the adults and could could not do much except ensure the welfare of the children, which is why they came in and took things that they could. Rock was found guilty of assault for the amputation of Gabrielle's arm and received a sentence of 12 years of imprisonment for that. Um, A majority of the cult followers abandoned Rock after his arrest, but during his imprisonment, he fathered another four children with remaining female members during conjugal visits. What the heck? Right. First of all, I think conjugal visits shouldn't even be a thing. Yeah. Like, you're in prison. You don't get to have good stuff. Right. That's unless it's with Bubba in the shower. (laughs) No, that's not really the good stuff. Right. But four more kids after he was in prison. That's crazy. Um, Gabrielle's report allowed further investigation into Rock's actions, exposing the wider abuses at the commune and Salone's murder in 1993. Rock pleaded guilty to second-degree murder for the death of Salone and was sentenced to life imprisonment. In 2000, he was transferred to Dorchester Penitentiary, medium security prison in Dorchester, New Brunswick. In 2002, he was rejected for parole as he was considered to, too high of a risk to reoffend. Which, good. All right. Yeah. In 2009, Rock tried to sell his artwork on a United States based website, murderauction.com which called itself a true crime auction house and was willing to sell some of Rock's drawings and poetry. The Correctional Service of Canada prevented his works leaving Dorchester Penitentiary and Stockwell Day, the Canadian Federal Public Safety Minister at the time, wrote to the Correctional Service to express concern that the killer was benefiting from, from work in prison. On February 26th of 2001, at the age of 63, Rock was found dead near his cell at Dorchester Penitentiary. His death is believed to be the result of an altercation with his cellmate, Matthew Gerard McDonald, a 60-year-old convicted murderer from Port Alport. I'm pretty sure that's it. Newfoundland and Labrador. Yeah, that was all one thing. And who was charged with the killing. McDonald pleaded guilty to the second degree murder and was sentenced to life in prison. 
Having already been serving a life sentence for previous murder charge, McDonald had stopped, had stopped, he had stopped him. (laughs) 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 So McDonald stabbed Rock in the neck with the shiv, walked to the guard station, handed them the weapon and proclaimed, that piece of shit is down in the range. Here's the knife. I've sliced him up. So, yeah. In 2002, um, there was a film, Savage Messiah, that depicts Rock's crime against his followers and the ensuing legal recourse. Gabrielle, the one who got her arm amputated, actually wrote a memoir of her life in in the sect entitled French Words, La Alliance de la Rebus. Pretty sure that's not the correct pronunciation, but it translates to Alliance of the Sheep. So that's where everyone's at. Oh. Right? That's just crazy. Could you, like, even imagine getting involved with that, for one, and then sticking around while they just constantly torture you and demean you and just... You can't even imagine. Yeah. I would think and hope that I would try and fight back and. Right? Something. Well, first of all, try not to put myself in that situation, but. Yeah, you'd hope not, right? (laughs) So that was my story. I'm sticking to it. It was a good one. Right? It was different. Crazy one. Thank you, Sydney. Yeah. Thanks, Squid. Our little squid. So mine this week and possibly next week is the exorcisms of Latoya Ammons. Latoya Ammons? I don't think I have. So in new new in November. November. Not not old November. November. In November two thousand eleven. Ammon's family moved into a rental house on Carolina Street in Gary, Indiana. The quiet lane lined with small, one-story homes. Big black flies suddenly swarmed their screened-in porch in December, despite the winter chill. Yeah, that's weird. This is not normal, Ammon's mother, Rosa Campbell, remembers thinking. We killed them and killed them and killed them, but they kept coming back. There were other strange happenings, too. After midnight, Campbell and Ammons both said they occasionally heard the steady clump of footsteps climbing the basement stairs and the creak of the door opening between the basement and kitchen. But nobody was there. Even after they locked the door, the noise continued. Campbell said she awoke one night and saw a shadowy figure of a man pacing her living room. She leaped out of bed to investigate and found large, wet boot prints. How do you see... I guess it depends on the house setup, but how do you lay in bed and see someone pacing in your living room? Like the hallway, too, was like a straight shot from your bedroom. Yeah, I guess that's true. Yeah. Yeah. You're right. I'm wrong. You're right. I'm wrong. So on March 10th of 2012, Campbell said the family's unease turned to fear. It was about 2 a.m. Normally, Campbell, Ammons, and her children would have been asleep, 
that they were mourning the death of a loved one with a group of friends. Ammons, who was in Campbell's bedroom, startled everyone by screaming, Mama, Mama! Campbell said she ran into her bedroom where the, her then 12-year-old granddaughter and a friend were staying. Ammons and Campbell said the 12-year-old was levitating above the bed unconscious. That would be so creepy. Right? Can you imagine? How old is she? 11? 12. 12. So That'd imagine like, walking into a green room and he was levitating unconscious above his bed. That would be horrifying. Right? Creed, don't do this to us. Don't do it, Creed. So according to their account of events, Ammons and several others surrounded the girl praying. Campbell said she remembers being terrified. I thought, what's going on, Campbell said. Why is this happening? Eventually, Campbell said her granddaughter descended onto the bed. The girl woke up with no memory of what happened, Campbell said. Campbell and Ammons said the people who were visiting that night refused to return. I don't blame them. <laughs> right? I wouldn't want to come back either. Like, peace and... If you want to see us, you got to come to us. Don't bring that demon floating child. Right? Campbell says she remembers telling her daughter, we need help. We need to talk to someone who knows how to deal with it. Campbell and Ammons said they didn't know exactly what it was, but they believed it was something supernatural. They called local churches, but most refused to listen. Eventually, after listening to Campbell and Ammons talk about the house and visiting it, Officials at one church told them the Carolina Street House had spirits in it. They recommended the family clean the home with bleach and ammonia, then use oil to draw crosses on every door and window. At the church's suggestion, Ammon said she poured olive oil on her three children's hands and feet and smeared oil in the shape of crosses on their foreheads. Could you imagine? <laughs> Here you go! Well, that would be weird. <laughs> Campbell and Ammons also told the Star they reached out to two clairvoyants who said the family's home was besieged by more than 200 demons. Their explanation made sense to Campbell and Ammons, they say because it meshed with their Christian faith. The best thing you can do is move Ammons. Move. Ammons remembers the clairvoyants telling her, but moving wasn't an option for the cash-strapped family. Instead, Ammon said she took a clairvoyant's advice and made an altar in the basement. <laughs> Ammon's covered an end table with a white sheet, then placed a white candle and statue of Mary, Joseph, and Jesus on it. She opened a Bible to Psalm 91. She said she and another person donned white t-shirts and wound white scarves around their heads. Also, on a clairvoyant's advice, they burned sage and sulfur throughout the house, starting upstairs and working their way down. The smoke was so thick they could hardly breathe. Ammons also drew a cross with the smoke. Then the person she was with read Psalm 91 aloud as they moved through the house. You will not fear the terror of night, nor the arrow that flies by day nor the pestilence that stalks in the darkness, nor the plague that destroys at midday. Ammon said nothing odd happened for three days, then things got worse. Worse? Worse. <laughs> the family said demons possessed Ammon's and her children, 
then ages 7, 9, and 12, so pretty much our kids' age. Right. The kids' eyes bulged, evil smiles crossed their faces, and their voices deepened every time it happened. Ew. Campbell and Amundsen. I don't like that. Like, not even a little bit. That's so freaking terrifying. Could you imagine? Like, obviously, I can imagine Lennon's voice doing that, but I can't imagine the (laughs) creepy-ass smile. Right? Oh, that would be horrible. So Campbell, which is Hammond's mom, said the demons didn't affect her because she was born with protection from evil, somehow. (laughs) That she and others like her have a guardian who protects them. Hammond said she felt weak, lightheaded, and warm when she was possessed. Her body shook, and she said she felt out of control. You can tell it's different, something supernatural. The youngest boy, then seven, sat in a closet talking to a boy that no one else could see. The other boy was describing what it felt like to be killed. I would have to kick my kid out. I'd be like, I'm sorry, but you need to move. You need to leave. Like, right now. We don't want you here. Yeah. (laughs) Take your demon friend with you. Demons be gone. So Campbell said the seven-year-old once flew out of the bathroom as if he'd been thrown and a headboard once smacked into Ammon's daughter, causing a wound that needed stitches. Holy crap. The 12-year-old would later tell mental health professionals that she sometimes felt as if she were being choked and held down so she couldn't speak or move. She said she heard a voice say she'd never see her family again and wouldn't live for another 20 minutes. Oh my gosh. Well, apparently it lied. Right. Some nights were so bad the family slept at a hotel. Finally, in desperation, they went to their family physician, Dr. Jeffrey... I'm just going to say O, because I can't pronounce his last name. Oh, it's not Dahmer? No. On April 19th of 2012, Ammon said she told him what they were going through, hoping he might understand. Dr. O told the star it was bizarre. That rhyme. (laughs) 20 years, and I've never heard anything like that in my life, he said. I was scared for myself when I walked into the room. He said he would not speak in more detail unless Ammons had psychiatric clearance for the waiver of confidentiality she had signed. In his medical notes about the visit, Dr. O wrote, Illusions of Ghost in Home and Hallucinations. He also wrote, History of Ghost at Home and delusional. What Ammons and Campbell say happened next also was detailed in a DCS report of a family case manager's interviews with medical staff. He walked up the wall, flipped over her, and stood there, Campbell said. Ammons' son cursed Dr. O in demonic voices, raging at him. Wait, so like, stepped onto the wall, walked up up to the ceiling? So I'm pretty sure it talks about it. later in here what like how he actually did it okay so medical staff said the youngest boy was lifted and thrown into the wall with nobody touching him according to a dcs report the boys abruptly passed out and wouldn't come to campbell added she cradled one boy in her arms ammons held the other someone from the doctor's office called 911 dr o Said even, or seven or eight police officers and multiple ambulances showed up. 
Everybody was. They couldn't figure out exactly what was happening, he recalled. Police and emergency personnel took the boys to Methodist Hospital's campus in Gary. Ammon said hospital personnel laughed at her desire to anoint her sons in olive oil. I couldn't talk to them, she said, so I talked to God. So the boys woke up in the hospital. The older boy, then nine, acted rationally, but the youngest screamed and thrashed, Campbell said. She said it took five men to hold him down. Holy cow, and he's a little boy, like seven? Seven, yeah, the seven-year-old. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. It's like when Mason had superhuman strength at the Kid <laughs> Cuddy concert. <laughs> I couldn't imagine, like... Just... Taking a nap at a Kid Cuddy concert? No, like... <laughs> oh, you mean the kid? I'm grown men having to hold Grayson down. Right, that would be crazy. There's sometimes when I think he's got a demon in him. Right. <laughs> So meanwhile, someone called DCS and asked the agency to investigate Ammons for possible child abuse or neglect. The caller, who is not named in the DCS report, speculated that Ammons might have a mental illness. The person believed the children were performing for Ammons and she was encouraging their behavior. DCS family case manager Valerie Washington was asked to handle the initial investigation. She gave the following account to police and in her intake officer's report. Hospital personnel examined Ammons and her children and found them to be healthy and free of marks or bruises. The hospital psych- psychiatrist evaluated Ammons and determined she was of sound mind. Washington interviewed the family in the hospital. While she spoke with Ammons, the seven-year-old boy started growling with his teeth showing. His eyes rolled back in his head. The boy locked his hands around his older brother's throat and refused to let go until adults pried his hands open. Oh. This would be so creepy. Kids are creepy anyway. Exactly. Later that evening, Washington and registered nurse Willie Lee Walker brought the two boys into a small exam room for an interview. Campbell joined them. The seven-year-old started... Into his brother's started. <laughs> stared. The seven-year-old stared into his brother's eyes and began to growl again. It's time to die, the boy said in a deep, unnatural voice. I will kill you. Oh. While the youngest boy spoke, the older brother started headbutting Campbell in the stomach. Campbell grabbed her grandson's hands and started praying. What happened next would rattle the witnesses, and to some, it would offer not only evidence, but proof of paranormal activity. According to Washington's original DCS report, an account corroborated by Walker, the nurse, the nine-year-old had a weird grin and walked backward up a wall to the ceiling, then flipped over Campbell, landing on his feet, never letting go of his grandmother's hand. That's a pretty cool trick, though. He walked up the wall, flipped over her, and stood there, Walker told the star. There's no way he could have done that. Maybe his grandma has really good strength in her arm, and she actually held him up. Held him up there. (laughs) I gotcha! (laughs) That would be so creepy. That would be so freaking creepy. Right? So later, police asked Washington whether the boy had run up the wall as though performing an acrobatic trick. Right. 
No, Washington told them. She said the boy glided backwards on the floor, wall, and ceiling, according to a police report. So he didn't actually walk, he like glided? He glided. Ugh. Like flipped off the wall over his grandma. That would be so freaking insane. Be, I'm out. I'd be like, I am no longer part of, what is it, DCS? Yeah. Or DFS, whatever it was. DCS. Yeah. I'd be like, I am gone. Here's my resignation. Have a nice freaking day. Right. So Washington did not respond to the star's request for comment. But she told police she was scared when it happened and ran out of the room, as I would have. Yeah, I also would have. As for Walker, Washington said, he ran out of the room with me. Don't blame him. Right? We didn't know what was going on, Walker told the star. That was crazy. It was like, everybody gotta go. <laughs> I'm with you. Leave grandma with the crazy grandkid. Right? According to Washington's report, they told a doctor what happened. The doctor, who did not believe them, asked the boy to walk up the wall again. Walker said he told the doctor he doubted the boy could repeat the feat. This kid was not himself when he did that, Walker said. The boy said he didn't remember what happened and couldn't do it, according to Washington's report. Well, no shit. Walker, who said he previously believed in demons and spirits, thought the boy's behavior had some demonic spirit to it, but also was the result of a mental illness. The police report quoted Washington saying she believed there could be an evil influence affecting the family. Ammon said she spent the night at the hospital with her seven-year-old son while Campbell took Ammon's daughter and older son to a relative's home in Gary. The next day was Ammon's youngest son's eighth birthday. Ammon said DCS officials asked Campbell to bring the other children back to the hospital Presumably to talk more about what happened. The family celebrated the boy's birthday by singing and eating a miniature cake. Then, <laughs> then Ammons said Washington told them the children wouldn't be going home. DCS took the emergency step of taking custody of the children without a court order. So they took him because he was possessed or they took him because they thought they were being abused? They thought that there was something going on. They didn't believe that. Like all this crap was happening because of being possessed. That they, sucks. Thought, they thought the mom was involved in it somehow. <laughs> the mom that wasn't there when he glided up the wall. Right? So, all right. So all of the children were experiencing sick, spiritual, and emotional distress. Washington wrote in the DCS forum. Emmons told the Star she and her children cried because they didn't want to be separated. We'd already been through so much and fought so hard for our lives, she recalled. It was obvious we were a team and we were beating it. Whatever we were fighting, we made it through together as a team and they separated us. The Reverend Michael Magano was leading Bible study in his living room the morning of April 20th, 2012, when he received a call from a hospital chaplain. Magano had been... I feel like I've heard that name priest before. At St. Stephen Martyr Parish in Merrillville for more than 10 years, but had never received a request like this one. The chaplain asked him to perform an exorcism on Ammon's nine year old son. 
Magano agreed to interview the family after Sunday Mass a few days later. The first step, Magano said, was ruling out natural causes for what Ammons and her family said they were experiencing. He visited Ammons and Campbell in the Carolina Street home April 22, 2012. For two hours, Ammons and Campbell detailed the phenomena for him. Then Campbell interrupted the interview to point out a flickering bathroom light. The flickering stopped each time Magano walked over to investigate, which he attributed to a demonic presence. They must be scared of me, he later told the star he had thought. The interview was interrupted again when Campbell pointed out Venetian blinds in the kitchen swinging even though there was no air current. Magano said he also saw wet footprints throughout the living room. Kind of like the same ones that yeah, she'd seen. Ammons complained about having a headache. Magano said she convulsed when he placed a crucifix against her head. After a four-hour interview, Magano said he was convinced the family was being tormented by demons. He said he also believed there were ghosts in the house. Magano blessed the house before he left, praying, reading from the Bible, and sprinkling holy water in each room. He told Ammons and Campbell to leave because it wasn't safe. They temporarily moved in with a relative. But less than a week later, the two women were back on Carolina Street to let Washington, the DCS family case manager, check the condition of the home. Washington asked a Lake County police officer to come with her. Two other officers, one each from Gary and Hammond Police Departments, asked to join them out of professional curiosity. Ammons refused to go inside, but Campbell agreed to accompany the group. Ammons' kids still were in DCS custody. The main floor had three bedrooms, a living room, one bathroom, hardwood floors, and a small, open-style kitchen. A door in the kitchen led to a basement with concrete floors. Directly under the stairs was a dirt floor. The concrete around it was jagged as though it had been broken. The makeshift altar Ammons had created was still in place, along with rings of salt she had poured against the basement walls to dissuade the demons, according to a Hammond Police Department report. Campbell told officers that demons seemed to emanate from beneath the stairs. Austin, the Gary police captain, was one of those officers. He later told the star he believed in ghosts and the supernatural, but said he didn't believe in demons. How could you believe in ghosts but not believe in demons? Right? So Austin said he changed his mind after visiting the Carolina Street House. During the interview with Campbell, one of the officer's audio recorders malfunctioned. According to Austin and Hammond police records, the power light flashed to indicate the batteries were dying, even though the officer had placed fresh batteries in the recorder earlier that day. Another officer recorded audio, and when he played it back later, heard an unknown, unknown voice whisper, Hey, according to Lake County Police Records. That officer also took photos of the house. In one photo of the basement stairs, there was a cloudy white image in the upper right-hand corner. When an officer enlarged the photo, that cloud appeared to resemble a face. 
Lake, Lake County Police Records State. The enlargement also revealed a second green image that police say looked like a female. Austin said photos he snapped with his iPhone also seemed to have strange silhouettes in them. The radio in his police-issued Ford malfunctioned on the way home. Later, Austin said the garage at his Gary home refused to open, even though the power was on everywhere else. Austin said the driver's seat in his personal 2005 Infinity also started moving backward and forward on its own. So, like, it's following them all? Yeah. He said he had the car checked at a dealership, and the mechanic told him the motor on the driver's seat was broken, which the mechanic said could have caused a distraction leading to an accident. Austin said he found himself starting to believe Ammon's claim of paranormal activity, but the mental health professionals evaluating Ammon's and her children remain skeptical. DCS outlines case plan in April of 2012. DCS petitioned Lake Juvenile Court for temporary wardship of the three children. The request was granted. DCS so like wardship like of DCS, they get to keep them for now. Yes. Or like, okay, sorry. So, DCS found that Ammons neglected her children's education by not having them in school regularly. The agency made the same finding in 2009, its records show. Ammons told Washington there were times she could not send the kids to school because the spirits would make them sick, or they would be up all night without sleep, which makes sense. Right. ECS temporarily placed her daughter and older son at St. Joseph's Carmelite Home in East Chicago. Ammon's youngest son was sent to Christian Haven in Wheatfield for a psychiatric evaluation. Yeah, because so he's gliding up the walls. That wasn't the youngest. Oh, I it thought it was the oldest. Or the the seven-year-old that went up the wall. I don't know why I thought it was the seven-year-old. So, clinical psychologist Stacy Wright, who evaluated Emmons' youngest son, said the boy tended to act possessed when he was challenged, redirected, or asked questions he didn't want to answer. In her evaluation, Wright wrote that he seemed coherent and logical except when he talked about demons. It was then that the eight-year-old's stories became bizarre, fragmented, and illogical, Wright said. His stories changed each time he told them. He also changed the subject, quizzing Wright on math problems and asking her about outer space. Can you die if you go to space? He asked. How do you get to space? Do you have to wear a helmet and suit? Sounds like normal kid questions. Right? Wright believed the eight-year-old did not suffer from a true psychotic disorder. This appears to be an unfortunate and sad case of a child who has been induced into a delusional system perpetuated by his mother and potentially reinforced by other relatives, she wrote in her psychological evaluation. Mm-hmm. Clinical psychologist Joel Schwartz, who evaluated Ammon's daughter and older son, came to a similar conclusion. There also appears to be a need to assess the extent to which Ammon's daughter may have been unduly influenced by her mother's concerns that the family was exposed to paranormal experiences, Schwartz wrote. Ammon's daughter told Schwartz that she saw shadowy figures in the Carolina Street home. She also said she twice went into trances. 
Ammon's older son told Schwartz that doors would slam and stuff started moving around. Ammon's also was examined several times by psychologists who said she was guarded, but not, did not seem to be experiencing symptoms of psychosis or thought disorder. One psychologist recommended Ammons be assessed to determine whether her religiosity may be masking underlying delusional ideations or perpetual disturbances. Ammons and all three kids continued to insist they were possessed by demons. DCS set goals for the family. One of them stipulated that the children not discuss demons and being possessed and take responsibility for their actions. They also needed to participate in therapy to address past behavior. So, if they really are possessed, and this lady's like, you can't talk about being possessed, and you need to take response. That's really missed. You don't talk about possession. Right? It's nine-tenths of the law. Just kidding. <laughs> While DCS officials credited Ammons for sharing a close bond with her children, the agency also said she needed to use alternate forms of discipline not, not directly related to religion and demon possession, according to DCS case plan. What, okay, what kind of um, punishments? I'll punish you by sticking the demons on you. Right? Like, <laughs> what kind of punishments are these? Like, what is she doing? Right. So, appropriate discipline included encouragement, rules, and withholding privileges. She could work on those goals during her supervised visits with the children. Punish your kids while you get to visit them for a couple minutes. Right. So, Ammons also had to find a job in appropriate housing due to the paranormal activity at the house on Carolina Street. While Ammons worked on meeting those objectives, police and DCS officials continued to investigate strange happenings in the house. So the next time they went to the house, the group was a bit larger this time. Campbell, Ammons, Austin, and two other police officers from the initial visit went back to the Carolina Street home on the afternoon of May 10th, 2012. The police officers visited after work hours. They were joined by Magano, which is the priest, yeah. two Lake County officers with a police dog, and DCS family case manager, Samantha Eilick. So Eilick, who was there in an official capacity, told the star she volunteered to go in Washington's place because Washington didn't want to go back to the house. Oh, no shit. <laughs> I wouldn't either. The county officer took his police dog around the home, but the dog didn't show interest in any particular area according to Lake County police records. Everyone else headed into the basement. Eilick touched some strange liquid she saw dripping in the basement and said it felt slippery yet sticky between her fingers. Magano told police he wanted to check the dirt under the stairs for a pentagram or personal objects that might have been cursed. He said a pentagram might indicate a demonic presence and possible portal to hell. According to a Lake County police report. Or if someone they actually had... put it in the police report? Yeah. This might be a portal to hell? That's yeah. crazy. Or if someone had died in the house and was buried under the stairs, it could explain paranormal activity, Magano added. One of the police officers dug a four-foot by three-foot hole beneath the stairs, unearthing a pink press-on fingernail. 
a white pair of panties, a, politi a political shirt pin, a lid for a small cooking pan, socks with the bottoms cut off below the ankles, candy wrappers, and a heavy metal object that looked like a weight for a drapery cord. Please record state. Question. Yes. The socks, if they're cut off below the ankle, aren't they just leg warmers? Sure. So they had the bottom cut off just below the ankles. So the whole foot part is gone, right? What it sounds like. <laughs> I don't know. Okay, sorry. So finding nothing else, the officer replaced the dirt and raked over it. Magano blessed some salt, which he said is a barrier to evil, and spread it under the stairs and throughout the basement. Eilick said she was later standing in the living room with the rest of the group when her left pinky finger started to tingle and whiten. She complained it felt broken. That's weird. Less than ten minutes later, Eilick said she felt as if she was having a panic attack. She couldn't breathe, so she walked outside to wait for the group. When the priest started questioning Ammons inside the house, she complained of a headache and shoulder pain, according to police records, so she went and joined Eilek outside. Austin said he left the house at nightfall. Austin, who has been shot at and has investigated murders, rapes, and armed robberies during his more than three decades on the force, said he wasn't staying in the house past dark. Same son. Yeah. The other officers continued to walk through the home. On the main floor, they noticed an oil-like substance dripping from the Venetian blinds in a bedroom but couldn't figure out where it was coming from, police records state. To make sure Campbell or Ammons hadn't poured oil on the blinds, two of the officers used paper towels to clean it off. The officers sealed the room for 25 minutes and stood, stood nearby so no one could walk in. When they went back in, the oil had reappeared, according to police records. Magano told police the liquid was a manifestation of a paranormal or demonic presence. He wrote a report detailing his findings and asked Bishop Del Melchek's permission to perform an exorcism on Ammons. So Magano said Melchek had never authorized an exorcism in 21 years as Bishop of the... Diocese of Gary. Diocese? 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 Yeah. Debbie Bosak, Director of Communications for the Diocese, said she cannot comment on whether Melchek has ever approved an exorcism for the confidentiality reasons. In general, she said, such an action would require a bishop's approval. Melchek initially denied. Magano's request to do a church-sanctioned exorcism, Magano said. The bishop told Magano to contact other priests who have performed exorcisms. Magano said he needed other priests to give him the ritual for a minor exorcism, which does not require church approval. The priests he consulted told him to look it up on the internet. He said he did an intense blessing on the Carolina Street home to expel bad spirits. That same day, Magano performed a minor exorcism on Ammons. The ritual consisted of prayers, statements, and appeals to cast out demons. 
Two police officers and Eilek, the DCS family case manager, attended the ritual. Eilek said she left believing that something was going on, although she wouldn't go as far as saying it was demonic. She said she got chills during the nearly two-hour ride. We felt like someone was in the room with you, someone breathing down your neck. That would be so creepy. Right? I feel like, you know what? I don't want to do this anymore. I'm good. I'm just going to go home now. Alex said she had a string of medical problems after visiting the home. A week after she visited the house for the last time, Alex said she got third-degree burns from a motorcycle. Within 30 days, she also broke three ribs jet skiing, broke a hand when she hit a table, then broke an ankle running in flip-flops. Dang. I had friends who wouldn't talk to me because they believed that something had attached itself to me, Alex said. Her joking response, I'm already evil. They try to find something that's not evil and corrupt it. They wouldn't waste their time on me. After the minor ritual, Nagano told Ammons to look up the names of demons that were tormenting her. Each demon has a name and personality, Magano said. A name has power, the priest added, and he planned to use those names to fight the demons during the exorcisms. Ammon said she and a friend looked up the demons' names online by searching for demons that represented the problems the family had been having. The computer kept shutting down. She said she felt sick and lightheaded. That would be so weird. But also, he's just asking her to get names, just random names. So apparently different names of demons do different things, I guess, and so... With like everything that was happening, he wanted her to find out the names of these demons. Weird. Yeah. So she said they found names that fit. One such name was Beelzebub, Lord of the Flies. Ammon said, "Call me Beels." Do you remember that song? Uh-uh. You don't remember that song? No. It's um, what is it? Something Lynch. Is it Stephen Lynch? He's a singing comedian. My name is Satan. That one? That's not Are you serious? Yeah. I'll have to look it up. Yeah. After this. You guys look it up. It's so funny. So she said they also found names of demons that torture and hurt kids, which she felt explained what happened in the Carolina Street House. Ammon said other high-ranking demons also were assigned to her, including lieutenants and sergeants. After the minor rite, Magano said Bishop Melchek gave him permission to exorcise Ammons. The ritual is the same as the minor exorcism, but more powerful because it has the backing of the Catholic Church, Magano said. Magano ultimately performed three major exorcisms on Ammons, two in English and the last one in Latin, in June of 2012 at his Merrillville Church. During each, Magano said, and praised God and condemned the devil. He pressed a crucifix against Ammon's head as he spoke. I cast you out, unclean spirit, along with every satanic power of the enemy, every specter from hell, and all your fell companions, in the name of our Lord. Magano said his voice continued to get louder and more forceful until the demon weakened. He said he could tell how strong the demon was by how much Ammon's convulsed. Two police officers 
who had kept in touch with Magano since the home investigation, stood nearby in case Emmons needed to be restrained. Emmons said she prayed with Magano until it became too painful. She said she felt as if something inside her was trying to hold on and inflict pain at the same time. She said it was different from a natural pain, but felt as intense as giving birth. Ugh. Yeah. That, I can say, was extremely painful. I'll take your word for it. Ugh. Said, I was hurting all over from the inside out, she remembered. I'm trying to do my best and be strong. Eventually, Magano said Emmons fell asleep. She said that that was the demon's way of lessening the ritual's effect. In between the second and third exorcisms, Magano said she went on a retreat. A woman who assisted Magano with some of the exorcisms helped set up a backpack, backpack. helped set up a backup plan in case Ammons had problems while Magano was gone. The woman wrote a long demon name. Magano said he can't remember which one it was on a piece of paper and tucked it in an envelope. Then she surrounded it with blessed salt. If Ammons had problems, the woman would burn the envelope, Magano said. By this time, Ammons and her mother had moved to Indianapolis, where they drove back for the exorcisms and court hearings as her children were still in DCS care. So they didn't even live in that house anymore and she was still having issues? It's like it latched on her. Oh my gosh, that's crazy. Yeah. So Magano said he blessed the family's new home to prevent more problems. But Ammons called while Magano was on his retreat, complaining of bad dreams, so the woman burned the envelope. She saved the ashes to burn later in a church bonfire. After that, Ammons said her nightmares ended. In the final exorcism at the end of June 2012, Magano said he prayed and berated the demons in Latin rather than English. Police officers did not attend, so Magano said his brother stood guard. Magano said Ammons convulsed while he condemned the demons, but did not convulse during prayer. When she fell asleep, he said words of thanksgiving. <laughs> Turkey. It, it would be the... potatoes. Gravy. <laughs> Rolls. Cranberry sauce. Corn. I don't remember eating no corn. So it would be the last time Ammon saw Magano. She and her mother drove back to Indianapolis, where they say they now live without fear. Ammon's old home on Carolina Street became an object of local curiosity, so much so that the owner and landlord, Charles Reed, called the Gary Police Department to ask officers to stop driving by the house because it was scaring his new tenant. He said you there were... You would think that they would feel more safe with the police just driving by all the time. Like, hey, no one's going to break in. Yeah, you would think. <laughs> so he said there were no problems in the home before or after Ammons, and her family lived there. I thought I heard it all, said Reed, who's been a landlord for 33 years. This was a new one to me. My belief system has a hard time jumping over that bridge. When told of the Catholic Church's involvement in the situation, however, Reed said that made him less skeptical. Ammons regained custody of her three children in November of 2012, about six months after they'd been removed. 
DCS continued to check in on the children and make sure they were going to school until the case was closed last February. Emmons called her children's return the happiest day of her life. She said they screamed and jumped up and down when she picked them up from the DCS office in Gary. It was just awesome, Emmons said. I hadn't been that happy in God knows how long. The children said they felt safe after they left the house on Carolina Street, the family said. The three left their demonic voices and complaints behind them. <laughs> no demonic presences or spirits in the home, DCS family case manager Christina Olejnik wrote in team meeting notes dated January 10th, 2013. She did not return calls from the star seeking comment. The family is no longer fixated solely on religion to explain or cope with the children's behavior issues. Olejnik and her supervisor wrote in a request for dismissal of wardship dated January 24th, 2013. For her part, Ammon says, it was not psychologists who resolved her problems, but God. When you hear something like this, she said, don't assume it's not real, because I've lived it. I know it's real. That would be so crazy. Right? Right? I. Looks like you get possessed and your family gets possessed and then you lose your kids and what a nightmare yeah that would be horrible it'd be so horrible it would i liked that story brian good job thanks for recommending a possession story i did i told him i wanted to hear a possession story because <laughs> i'm weird like that <laughs> um yeah that was, that was our episode, guys. It was our episode. Yeah. What now? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> um. Yeah, so if you guys liked it, please rate the the, 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 the podcast. <laughs> podcast. Oh, and this podcast will air on Mother's Day. Yes, it will. So, happy Mother's Day to all you mothers out there. Yeah. Including you, Whitley. Thanks. Happy Mother's Day, all you mothers. Yeah. All right. Well, if you liked it, rate the podcast. Please leave a review. Brian's yawning. I'm boring him already. <laughs> go like our, or go follow our Instagram page at Deathly Afraid Podcast. Follow our Facebook group at, at it's Deathly Afraid Podcast. <laughs> um, send us an email, a suggestion, a story, a comment, whatever you want to tell us. Um, Deathly Afraid Pod at gmail.com. What am I missing? I was going to say, too, even if you know somebody that listens to our podcasts. And you want us to give like a birthday shout outs or whatever. That'd be fun to do that. If you know yeah, that'd be fun. somebody that has a birthday that listens to our podcast that we can shout out their birthday for them. Yeah, that'll be fun. Cool. All right, guys. Well, have a fantastic week and we will see you next Sunday. See ya. Bye.